we started talking about stewardship, which we said was kind of an update to our series on money that's found online. So we're spending two weeks kind of going back over one area that I think our group could do much better in, that is in stewarding resources. This is what we did last week. I gave some reasons why we're updating our series on money. I also talked about how we're doing on giving, which I'll summarize real briefly again. We looked at the parable of the talents, and then we reminded each other that there's a tension, that some of us are at different parts of a spectrum. Some of us need to hear the words of scripture about being idle and not producing enough in the kingdom, while others of us are really good about producing things, but they're not always for the kingdom. And we tend to be on the spectrum of hoarding wealth or falling into temptation over materialism and greed and hoarding. So we have to remind ourselves of the people within a in any group, within any community, might be at different parts of the spectrum, so that we have to look and be discerning as to where we are and where we need to be challenged. Here's how we're doing with giving in general. If you remember from last week, we were kind of predicting how we might do for this year. And the number I want you to really focus on is it seems like we're, maybe this group is donating around nine bucks a week. That's not good. You've heard me say in the past, we spend more sometimes on dinner afterwards. And these numbers are skewed because some people in the group give so much more that it's really just an average. And I also was trying to be sensitive last week to say, of course, you may be giving somewhere else and to other things. So I can't really judge that this is the sole amount that you're giving. But as we've just talked anecdotally with different people, that may be true. Some of you may not be giving at all. But really tonight, I like what Soren said when we were talking about in worship, he was kind of highlighting a little bit of this feeling about everything. And you saw last week that I started to highlight that word. We're going to look at it again. But before we get there, I just want to remind you what we're talking about. We're talking really about stewardship, even though we're focusing on money. Stewardship really is, as I defined it last week, like a faithful and wise use of the freedom and the responsibility that God has given us to produce a return. That's really what it is. Being faithful and wise in the use of the freedom, and of course, understanding we have responsibility for how we use that freedom to produce a return. What are we producing a return for? Well, we're producing a, a return for God, for the master who's given it to us. And last week, I think where we got bogged down is this. Some of you might have forgotten I had this slide up before we got into the parable of talents. There's a lot of things that we steward. And I listed some of them, like your time, your education, your career, your skills, passions, all the opportunities, even the gospel. We steward many things, meaning that we have been given those things by God and meaning that we're free to use them in the way that we think is best, but also meaning that there's going to be responsibility for the return that we do or do not produce. That's what the parable of talents is about. I don't mean that money should be the only thing on the list. What I mean is that it would be a grave misreading of the parable of the talents to miss that the talent that we're supposed to steward the best is money. But of course, if you're really going to break it down, the parable is about producing returns. So you could use all of these things. But the reason I'm focusing on money is because we do use a lot of these things, sometimes not well. But the one that we use the least is money because it has such a grip on us. Because there's greed in our hearts or there's materialism, we're going to see some of the things that trip us up today. But mainly, 
Jesus knew that we would always find a way to wrestle with, should we give up the money? That's why he said you can only serve one of two masters, and he set up the dichotomy between God and money. It's very telling that he chose that tension to set up because he knows us. He knows our heart. He knows that we're going to wrestle with money. And I think that's really something that we can't miss about the parable of talents. Here were some of the lessons that we pulled out of the parable of talents last week. We noticed, we observed that it was the master who's the one who provided the money to the steward. So all things come from the master. We're going to see that tonight in painful detail. We saw that the master expected that there be a return, not just that it would be nice if somebody produced a return, he expected it. He even punished the one who didn't return something with what he gave him. It wasn't okay just to hang on to it. The return was expected by the master. Third, we wrestled over the fact that the master gives different amounts to different people according to their ability. I made a translation directly to our lives. We always wait thinking that things might improve or that we might be able to do better with our money or our talents at some later point in time. That's a rationalization. I don't think that's what the parable of talents is about, especially when Jesus is telling the parable of talents in the context of, you don't know when I'm coming back. That's the context of that whole section of Matthew, of be alert, you don't know when I'm coming. So there's an urgency about when we're supposed to use it. How does that translate in real life? As I said last week, some of us think, well, when I have this much or when I get these kinds of things, then I'll really be able to produce a return for the kingdom. He wants us to produce a return with what we have now. And yes, we did look at the subject of idleness. Some of us should be pedaling a little bit harder on the bicycle. But we're still supposed to be producing with what we have because we don't know how many days we have left. And finally, even though we have this freedom in how we steward the master's talents, there's that responsibility. He comes back to make account. The imagery of settling accounts was a very familiar image in the first century of literally like setting up a table and calling people one by one to report how they had done. We don't think of Jesus sometimes in that way, but he's drawing that analogy directly for us. Like at the end time, I'm going to have an accounting table set up and find out how you did with what I gave you during this life. That's where we left off. Here is what we said we would cover tonight. I have three questions kind of up here. What part of what we possess belongs to Jesus? Number two, what does Jesus require of a true disciple? Number three, how much are we expected to give to the Lord's purposes? Three questions, and last week I told you that the answer to all of them is the same thing. The answer is everything. You might have gotten used to hearing about tithes or percentages or increasing amounts, but I don't see that in the New Testament. Now, of course, this word is going to cause consternation for us, so here's what I'd like to do. I'm going to present to you a case of why I believe that this word is the right word, everything, and then I want you to wrestle back. But let me first present where I even get this from, and I've been spending time, the more I spend looking at the subject of stewardship, which I spent a lot of time thinking about and talking about, and did kind of a word study just on the word everything and how it's used. So let's kind of go through it for a moment, and I'll show you some places. 
First, last week Philip asked us, where is it exactly or how do we establish that God is the owner of everything or that everything that I even make belongs to him? In the parable of towns, we see that clearly because it's the master who gives the possessions. And that actually is the direct analogy of what God has done for us. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. Everything is given by him to us. Here's some verses that establish that for us. Just a few, by the way. I've only picked a few, so I don't go crazy. We're going to be steeped in verses tonight, so I tried to limit myself, which you already know I'm running at the mouth already. Here we go. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 24.1. Repeated in the New Testament. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. In Job, we read these words. Who has a claim against me that I must pay? A financial term claim. Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me, says the Lord. Hebrews 2.8. In putting everything under him, being Jesus, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Just a few things to start with. Everything belongs to him. I don't think that's too controversial for us. The idea that God created everything, that without him nothing is made, that he owns everything. Maybe if we were honest, our heart wrestles with, yeah, but what if I work hard to do it and the guy next to me doesn't? Shouldn't I have more than him or her? But I think it'd be hard to make a case that everything doesn't belong to God and everything doesn't come from God. So if everything belongs to the Lord, the question is, why should we give everything to the Lord? Where does Jesus exactly say that? I'm just going to point out a few of them. Matthew 13, 45 to 47. Again, speaking about the kingdom, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything and bought it. Jesus compares the value of the kingdom as somebody who just gives up everything for it. In Mark 12, 43 to 44, calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more money in the treasury than all others. What's the context? You remember the story. Jesus is sitting in the temple watching how much people are giving. That's the part I like about the story, that he's watching. He actually brings the disciples to watch. And there's one person who's kind of putting in a large amount of money, and then there's this widow. And Jesus comments, they gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And that's the one that he commended. Luke 5, 10 through 12. Jesus said to Simon Peter, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch with me. Some translations say you will fish with me. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. The calling of Matthew, as stated in Luke 5, 27 and 28. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Luke 18, 21 to 23, to the rich young ruler. The excerpt, we know it pretty well. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. There's that word everything again. 
Now, I know we've probably heard sermons that put words around that, like a little asterisk. Yeah, yeah, that only applied to the rich young ruler, though. Don't go crazy. But I don't see that in Scripture, actually, that it only applied to him. In fact, tonight I'm going to read you the passage. I think it applies to everybody. John 3, 35. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. So there's a God who owns everything. Acts 2, 44. All believers were together and had everything in common. Acts 4.32, all the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed they had any possessions that were their own, but they shared everything they had. Now, I know you're probably thinking, what does everything really mean in the Greek? Does it really mean everything? Does it really mean that? What does it mean? So far, the only meaning I could find is it means everything. But I'm still looking. Here's 2 Corinthians 12.14 and 15. Paul speaking to the church at Corinth, Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, speaking financially, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. That means like literally give myself up until death for your sake. That's what we give up for the gospel work everything I have, and expend myself as well. So we see there's a pattern of people talking about this, and here's the passage that I think makes the case the best. Jesus talking to the crowds about what is discipleship. And notice it starts off, we're reading from Luke 14, 25 to 33, that's the passage we're reading. It starts off with this. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. I think that's very significant that we understand that large crowds are traveling with him. He's not just talking to his immediate 12 or the greater group that surrounded him. He's speaking to large crowds. That means that I think we are the equivalent of that in some way. He's speaking to us as well when he talks about discipleship. Large crowds are traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Are we disciples? Do we dare call ourselves disciples at that level? And then he gives two examples. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Let me stop right there and look at that tower example because I think it's very significant. I don't know where you're at and what you think the talents are that you have that you believe you steward for Christ. Maybe you're at the point where you understand and have taken inventory of the talents that he's given you, whether that be money or otherwise, but I'm including money tonight because that's what we're talking about, and you have some sense of what it is that you're going to accomplish for Christ in this life. I'd like you to think about that thing that you think you're going to accomplish as the tower, because that's what Jesus is talking about. That if one of you wants to build a tower wouldn't you first sit down whether you have what it takes to finish it? 
Otherwise, you're going to have a half-built tower and everybody's going to make fun of you. In the first century, everybody knew exactly what this meant. There was nothing more shameful than taking on an audacious project like trying to build something when you couldn't finish it. Because all your neighbors would snicker and make fun of you because you had this half-built monument to your failure. You tried to build something and you clearly didn't have what it takes to finish it, especially something kind of audacious like a tower that could be seen from all around. I mean, only people who had some sort of wealth would build something like this. So if you had kind of that arrogance to start to build one, or at least you thought, oh, I can do this, and you didn't, everyone would know you failed. And unless you ripped it down, everybody passing by would go, what is that? What is that half-built tower? Who couldn't finish it? I think that's the way people could look at our lives when we state the very things that we want to do for Christ in this life and we don't have what it takes to finish it. I hear a lot of people's plans. But a lot of the things we want to accomplish in this life, frankly, they take money. They require us to give and think deeply about how we're going to accomplish the things. And Jesus is giving very practical advice. If you're going to do something like that, don't you want to sit down and estimate whether you've got enough money to complete it? The stakes are very high because people see what we say and what we proclaim and what we want to do and the things that we, you know, we wear on our shirts and we sing in our songs and we think these are the things we're going to accomplish for Jesus in this life. Okay. And if we don't finish those things, all we have left sometimes is a monument to what we weren't able to accomplish. That brings shame to our cause. So Jesus is saying, think before you do this, before you come up with these grand plans. Of course, I'm expecting you to produce a return, but I'm also going to hold you responsible. And it doesn't do any good, probably, to bring this kind of shame even to the master. Here's another example, he says, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? Again, it's basic resource planning. Like if you're going to go to war and do something as audacious as take on another army, don't you want to know if you've got what it takes to finish it, to be able to win? Otherwise, he says, if he's not able... He will just send a delegation while the other is still a long way, ask, long way off and ask for terms of peace. Like, just give up. If you don't have what it takes, again, it's another resource planning exercise. So if we're going to do something in this life, whether it's building a classroom in Malawi, whether it's saying that we really want to do something to help the people around us in the city of Azusa, whether it's because we want to build another water well for world vision, whether we want to take the gospel to somebody, whether we're interested in seeing things happen, it takes resources. Not other people's resources, like let's fundraise and hope they just give money to our causes, but our resources, because we're the ones that have been entrusted with that vision, with that passion, and with the talents to do something. Otherwise, Jesus would say, everyone is going to ridicule us for saying that we're going to do these things and not having enough money to finish it. Now there's one phrase that I've left off of this verse. It's the last one. Remember, he's speaking to large crowds. 
He's saying you've got to give up everything, including your family, yes, even your own life to follow me. Make sure you have what it takes before you say you're going to do this. And then he ends with these words at the very end. Verse 33 says this, In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything, everything that he has cannot be my disciple. When I make the case that Jesus asks us to give up everything, I'm often met with a lot of really strange looks. But I don't see any other standard other than this one. To be a disciple. Now, now that I feel like I've at least established a case that that's what he's saying, I'm sure there's a lot of questions about what does he mean by that. So I think this is a good place to stop and hear what you have to say and struggle against this and tell me what's how this is making you feel. Yes? I don't have any answers, but I'm really just wondering what this would even look like. Everything means you don't live somewhere and you don't have anything to eat. What does that mean? How would you function? What would you do? Yeah, and that is that what he's talking about? I mean, again, I'm just repeating the words. I'm going to have you guys do the interpretation tonight. Because every time I do, you guys all jump all over me. Like, this room is so hard when it comes to possession. We are, there's really like a spirit of hanging on to our stuff in this room a lot. Yeah. Well, I guess part of it is there, there, have, there is a difference between when Jesus was here and when he sent his spirit to be with us. Because um, all of his disciples were following him around for three years without a home, visiting other people's homes, like a mother-in-law's home or um, just random people that are in different villages. And then in Acts, people have homes. They give up excess homes, but they have to have homes because everybody have, everyone's sharing. So it's not necessarily that they would call this my house, but they would say, we all live somewhere. They, have, they would live somewhere. Okay, let's get some parameters for Acts. The wealthier people in Acts sold what they had and gave to everyone, right? They laid it at the apostles' feet. That's one model. That doesn't mean people didn't have homes. You're right. So I like that because it wasn't that they were living in the open pasture. But the people who had more than the basic necessity appeared, at least from what we have in Acts, to lay it at the disciples' feet. And we also have the example of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts, which is always the freakiest one that you never mention on Stewardship Sunday, who sold the field and gave most of it, but not all of it, and lied about what they had done, right? So I think the the lesson there is probably about the lying, but it is fair to raise it that it is in the book of Acts that they gave quite a bit of what they sold and they were both struck dead for claiming that that was all they sold. So that's, I just want to put the on the table so we use the tools. Morgan? Yeah, I think, I like what you said about the ratio and the rule. I think we do cast that off too often in the sense that monasticism has been a real response throughout our history of people taking that seriously, actually believing that Jesus wanted us to sell our possessions, live communally, serve the poor, give and live at a much lower level than, than we could. And so I mean, you have to at least consider the fact that we might have too much stuff that we should actually literally <laughs> give up and sell and, and, and start over or, or to do that to some level or another. Okay. The tension with that, though, is don't we need resource to do something more than just hang out in a monastery and sing and pray? Like, well, that's, like there are people called to that. I mean, even the monks, after all, then they start making champagne or something, what they start doing, the Dom Perignon thing. Like, so 
at some level, that would work, and they could take care of the poor and the widows, the orphans. They could do a lot of that work, but it seems like, especially in our modern era, for some of the missionary work and outreach work and maybe even the discipleship work, it seems like it's becoming more capital intensive than to just do that. So that's another side to pull back on. Anyone want to solve this dilemma for us? The intersection between stewardship and giving up everything? Yeah. I think it's important to not just like look at these verses, but also look like in the context of the entire Bible on how much emphasis God puts on the poor and giving to them. And so it's not just like, okay, well, what is Jesus saying Christianity is now? But what is the theme going throughout all scripture and like how does that would that impact a christian community and how god directly commanded his people to live um before jesus came and then as jesus did after he gives so many direct commands to help the poor like so many i think it's like 586 or something like that um and the poor is like the second most common theme after idolatry. So I think it's not a matter of just looking up, oh, well, what about giving it everything, but like looking at the significance of that and like what that would mean. Or for what? What are we giving it up for? I think that's the step that we're getting closer because remember when we're talking about the parable of the talents and what we're supposed to do with he gave us, it's for the master's purposes, right? That's what we're supposed to produce. Like we don't just produce any return. We produce a return that's for the master. Now, that's a parable. How do we translate that? We look at what the master cares about. And that is a very, very significant step in what the master cares about. It is true that we focus a lot on the New Testament, but there are 1,100 verses on justice in the Old Testament, and most of them relate to a sense of advocacy for the people who are the poor, the widows, the people who don't have a voice, the orphans, right? So there's one clue, like if you're going to do something with these talents for the master, like what would your goals, your tower be? It should hopefully match what the master's talent would look like if it was produced. And that is definitely like high, probably the top of the list, I would say, but you might maybe disagree. I, I really agree with that. I think that's a great point. Um, like the Bible talks a lot about self-denial, but not self-denial as an end in itself. And it can be easy to think that like my abstinence from things is more important than what I'm giving them for. And that's a very like me focused, depriving myself rather than focusing on who I'm giving it to and furthering the kingdom of God and bettering others. That's brilliant. And that's why I push back a little bit on the monasticism, not because I don't believe there's a place for it, but if it was an end to itself saying I've secluded myself, I've cloistered myself from the world so that I might pray and worship you, God's not going to be bummed by that. I mean, that you would spend time doing that. But I actually would, and again, I don't want to speak on behalf of the Lord. I just would think that he'd be more excited if you gave up all your possessions, spent time praying and worshiping. And as Morgan pointed out, many of those communities also spent time caring for the poor. Like now we're into something that's a productive use of talents that goes beyond. And don't hear me saying that worshiping God and praying is not productive in and of itself. But I believe that that's part of why we're supposed to give up things, not just so that we could say, okay, I followed the discipline of giving up things. It will cause transformation. It will do great things. But I think that there's more to it, especially because Jesus constantly reminds us of that, especially because, as Brittany pointed out, the whole Old Testament has this theme that runs through it. 
And so do the epistles. Like that theme never leaves us. The theme of taking care of those around us. Clothing, feeding, visiting, loving, caring. All those things are the high ethic that Jesus leaves us with. I think it's also important that it's not just like, oh yeah, God exhorts us to give the four. But like he says, like if you don't and you ignore them, that's sinning. And I think that's also important. Like, I gave, uh, well, I was just reading in um, Deuteronomy 15, and it's talking about like if you are hostile towards your neighbor. Well, first of all, it says, if there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of the towns um, in the land which the Lord is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from the poor, um, from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him, and shall generously lend him sufficient for whatever he lacks. And then it goes on to say, like, if you don't, then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin to you. Sure. We also know in the book of Amos, right? God says, like, if you do not do justice for the people like the poor, I won't listen to your festivals and your songs away from me with all those praises that you give me, right? It's that kind of concept. So that's a theme that's throughout. All right, so we're starting to make some connection. I think what it means to give up everything is to put everything we have to the master's purposes, just like the steward. Now, if you follow the word stewardship or wise manager or just the manager or the servant in the parables that Jesus gives, a theme starts to develop there too, which we don't have time to go into, but I'll just tell you what it is. The manager appears to constantly be caring for himself and the other people in the household, and then everything else is put to the master's purposes. So for the people who say like, wait a minute, giving up everything, like, so we're just supposed to go and live in the fields? I don't even think that that concept of stewardship is what Jesus was talking about. He's actually talking about somebody who gives up everything in terms of ownership. See, we think we own it. We think it's ours. That's why I began with the verses that show that everything belongs to the Lord in the first place, and he's entrusted it to us. So by giving it up, surrendering, and all we're really doing is giving back to the Lord what's already his. And that's the concept I think we kind of, we say it sometimes, but when I hear it in churches, it sounds like, God, you've blessed us with so much, we're going to give you back a part. That implies that he gave it to us ownership, and that we're going to decide to give him back, like give him just a piece. The better way to think of it is, it's all his in the first place. We don't own it, we've just been entrusted with it. So when we're giving it back, it's not like we're deciding, like, out of mind, I'm going to give you something back, Lord. It's just like, it's all yours. When David was wanting to construct the temple, the Lord said, you can't do it. You're a king of war. I want your son Solomon to do it. But here's what I'll let you do. I'll let you raise money for it. So David praises the Lord just for the opportunity to raise money to build the temple. And he brings the whole assembly of Israel together and says these words. David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. David said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of our ancestors Israel forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, are greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, the majesty for all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. 
And then he says, but who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to make this free will offering? For all things come from you, and we have only given you what already comes from your hand. That's the attitude of offering everything to God, recognizing that it's all his, that we're entrusted with it, sure. And as we saw in the parable of talents, some more than others, depending on what the Lord wants to do in every talent, not just money. But we're focusing on money because that's the thing we hang on to the most. So offering everything to the Lord begins, and it may not end, but it begins with a recognition that it's not ours. It's all his. We're not returning a part like from our piece. It's his. All of it is his. Who are we that we even get the chance to work with what he's given us? That he's even entrusted us to participate in his kingdom building? Like what a God that would even work with us as broken and greedy and materialistic as we are that he would even say, yes, you are in charge of taking care of my people. You are the stewards who are going to give the other stewards in the household their food allowance at the proper time, it says in Scripture. You're the one who's going to feed people that I care about. Most of us would be like, Lord, don't depend on me. I'm not going to do a good job. But he does depend on us. Peter, upon hearing some of these words, says to the Lord, we have left everything to follow you. What then will be the reward for us? Now, Peter's comments could be read a couple of different ways. One is kind of like, wow, it's so hard, your teachings about stuff, but, you know, we gave up everything for you. Just, I mean, what's going to be for us in the end? What happens to people like us who give up everything and just follow you? Which you might be wondering, what if I did that? What if I just gave up all my sense of entitlement? Which is what you should do. But what if I actually took the step of faith to do that and just go, all right, it's all yours. I'm just going to do it. There's Peter stressed out a little bit. What's going to be for us in the end? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, and he's speaking to all the disciples around him, at the renewal of all things. He's talking about not in this life. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. All right, you might think, well, that's just for them. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Let me go back to that for a second, just to make sure you caught that. I mean, where would we inherit that? It's the end of the time. He's saying, like, you're going to inherit all this, but probably won't be here on earth. He's talking about things that are going to come in the next life. Now, another way to read this is Peter saying, okay, that's great that you're saying all this to those other people who couldn't do it, but what about us? What about us who did do it? Do we get something extra? And Jesus, no matter how you read it, Jesus' answer is the same. Yeah, Peter, you did follow me. You did leave behind. I mean, a lot of us have this image that Peter just left like a fishing boat. If you look contextually, it seems that Peter and his brother had a pretty lucrative fishing business. You don't just own a boat. Same thing with Matthew. Matthew left a lucrative tax position. You don't give those up. Those were things that you fought for because you could make a lot of money doing those things. It's not like, ah, I hate this job. I'll just follow that traveling rabbi guy. This is more like people were fighting to try to get these places because you knew you could make this kind of money. 
to leave an inherited profession in a boat like, like being a fisherman and just walk away, it's a big deal. So it shouldn't be like, oh, those down and out fishermen guys, they just followed Jesus, they couldn't do anything better, let's just do that. No, they left lucrative professions. So what is it that traps us, prevents us from giving up everything? What is it right now in this room that we wrestle against, even as we hear these words, that prevent us from doing this? You know, Paul says in 1 Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money, not money that's evil, but the love of it. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs because we love the money. That's why Jesus says, you want to find out where someone's heart is? Just follow the treasure. Find out what they spend their money on. That's what they care about. No matter what they say with their mouth, just follow the money. You'll know what they care about right away. Care about the poor, you care about orphans, show me your checkbook and show me how much goes to them and I'll tell you how much you care about them. What keeps us from giving everything? I've just listed a few factors. Materialism, debt, living for ourselves, greed, envy, idolatry. All those things are the things that pull us from just offering everything to the Lord. I'm only going to cover a couple of them. Materialism and living for ourselves. Luke 12, 15, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I think we know that it doesn't, but we still wrestle with it all the time. Like we know theoretically, if I think of like a true false to this verse, most of us would say, yes, that's true. My life does not consist in the abundance of my possessions. I know that up here. The problem is, if we audited our lives, we don't really know that down here in our heart. Ecclesiastes 5.10, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. And I've seen this all the time. My own life, and I've seen it in the lives of many of my clients. There is never a level of enough. Especially not in this country. We don't have a concept of enoughness. Materialism has another consequence. You remember when Jesus was talking about the seeds that fell among the thorns? There was this one seed that kind of seemed to be doing okay. It went into the ground, it sprouted up. And he says, the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke it, making it unfruitful. Unfruitful. We've talked a number of times about the dangers of being unfruitful. People of the faith who look like disciples but are unfruitful. And how Jesus says in John 15, the Father comes by and just cuts those branches off. Throws them into the fire. Sounds like it's not good to be unfruitful. What made this seed unfruitful when it came up? The deceitfulness of wealth. Yeah, and the worries of life. How about living for ourselves? I've been reading this book by Christian Smith. Jeremy was reading it as well. It's a book called Passing the Plate. Sociologist at Notre Dame who's been studying the church really closely, asking the question that we're kind of asking tonight. Like, why is it that Christians don't give? Why is it that no matter how much we say that we should be giving everything, that really Christians give about 2 to 3% on average? That there's like 25% of the church that gives zero, not one dime, to any church, any mission organization, just give nothing. Why is that? Most of the time, if you ask people to be honest as they did in focus groups, here's what the answer ends up being. They don't have anything to give. I mean, they just don't have anything. 
And if you really break it down and walk through what does it mean not to have anything, it comes down to one of two things. People are either not making that much because they just feel like, well, I'm just cruising by, I'm okay. Not really that we have an obligation to fund this mission we're talking about. Okay, that's kind of the minority answer. The, the greater answer is this one. We've just spent ourselves into oblivion. We just don't have anything because we spent it all. Because no matter how much we make, we find a way to spend more than that. That the average American still spends 5% more than they make every year. Every year, so it accumulates. So when we say, like, I don't have enough, it's, I can't give more, the person's right. It's because the choices we've made prevent them from giving anything. So living for ourselves, Jesus says this, do not store for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break and steal. For where your treasure is, there is your heart. The stuff here isn't going to last. The stuff here is going to break. The stuff here can be taken. The stuff here can't be taken with you, is what he's saying. But all of us are nesting here. All of us are living like this is all there is, including me. Again, there's, we've got to go, wait a minute. Does that mean we give everything away? Not if it's productive for the kingdom. We need to be working with that and producing for the kingdom. But our problem isn't that we're in the danger right now of giving too much away. Our problem is that we're in the danger of giving nothing away or very little away or so little that it doesn't matter. When we get to the point that we're about to go off the cliff and get a little too crazy, I'll let you know. But we're not there yet. We're far from that. We need to be more obedient in these things as opposed to worrying about, well, when are we going to go so far that we become crazy? Uh, like I said, I'll blow the whistle when we get there. I just don't think we're close. Yeah? I fully agree with your point, and I think that that's sort of my question is partially a hypothetical question because I agree we're more, much more on the extreme of pushing the other side. So like, um, I don't know, like, I'm struggling with this concept, I'm not sure, like, is there somewhere in God's purposes where, like, okay, well, for someone to read a book at some point, that's to relax, like, is that part of God's purposes? And we say no, like, and, and not, like, I understand, like, yeah, we're more than hypothetical, that we're not worried about, like, but there's some degree to which we, if that is the case, we should understand that and say, no, like, this is not acceptable for us to do anything ever, or spend anything ever that is... Well, not for God's purposes. And if that's solely for like, yeah, like I wanted to buy a fancy meal because I wanted to celebrate something. Or, you know, like, is that okay? Like, is that in God's purposes? That is a really good question. And the only thing I could tell you about that question is, you should ask that question every day. I do. As I study all of, by the way, all the biblical passages, not just Jesus' words, but starting from the beginning of the Old Testament all the way to the end, there is about 2,300 different verses on money. And I have a, a list of every single one of them, money, possessions, and what you do with them. I mean, there is more on that topic than any other topic I know in Scripture. When you start to connect them all, what you find out is the, the, the question pulls at you every day. There's a part where you go, yes, God loves to see his children enjoy themselves. God calls for times of celebration. In the book of Ecclesiastes, after all things in life seem to be out of our control and unable to be held on to, which he's talking about this concept of hebel and mist and not being able to hold on to it, 
He concludes like three or four times, but you should enjoy life and, and, and celebrate and spend time with your wife and these kinds of things. It was like, okay, if you believe that's part of scripture, then you have to see that there's one post over here. And then there's other parts where he's talking about giving up everything. I could see somebody who says, well, even any kind of enjoyment is taking away from somebody else who could otherwise use that money to eat or sponsor somebody. That's true. But God gives us freedom to decide at some point to go, you know what, I do believe that there's part where I'm just supposed to have a relationship with you or enjoy this life a little bit. I mean, you didn't come to just put me to work for 80 years of my life. That's where the freedom comes in. But I would say the reason you ask that question every single day is because that concept that he sets up in the parable of the towns where he literally has that image of setting up an accounting table to come at the end of your life and make account with you, like, what did you do? You have responsibility. So for me, as I ask that question every day, I have to run most purchases that I make, most things that I do with my time and my energy and my resources and my possessions and my money and my income, all those things, I'm trying to run through that grid. Like, what is the thing you've called me to do with my life? What am I going to return to you at the end of this life? And even though this is one thing or two things, it's probably okay. I mean, most of you know because you've been to our house. We have a house. I mean, you've been there, right? I mean, we think about that sometimes, and you've been part of that conversation we've had at times at our house where we go, should we even have a house? That's when, like, my wife and I get in the biggest fights we ever get into, you know? It's like, when I start asking, should we even have a house? And she's like, oh, you're getting extreme again. You're going crazy, right? You know, like, what are you doing? And we struggle, like, because I like the security. And also, somebody could say, well, but you use it for other things and you invite people over and people stay at your house and we feed people there. Right, right. But I could rationalize a swimming pool that way too. Like we'll have more parties and more swimming and, right? And after a while, I could rationalize an even bigger house. And after a while, I could rationalize like, you know, a, a, an RV, you know, like all sorts of things could be rationalized by what you could use them for. So I have to ask the question every day. Like in our life, we know that having a house allowed us to open it up and have all the activities that we do there. But so far, we've just said there is no way we could justify the expenditure of something larger like maybe a pool with all the people that could be fed by that expenditure of money. We'd really have to be in a place where we had done so much towards our responsibility to the Lord that we would feel like, okay, this could still be okay. And I don't know if it'll ever be okay, honestly. Honestly, it's hard. And over my life, that question every day gets harder. The more I know Jesus and the more my heart becomes like his, which I'm far, but every inch I get closer, it gets harder for me to spend money on things I used to spend money on. It just does. Because I see what it could go to. Yeah, I mean, like, I guess this is a lot, it's less, less of a question, more just like another aspect that makes, makes it more difficult for me. Even the passage you brought up, like the widow of giving her offering, like, was established that this is all she had to live on. And she gave it. And so it's a, it wasn't, I don't know, like that's just a weird concept. It's like, okay, well, we should help the poor. Like she was the poor and she gave her money away. Like, yeah, Christian Smith finds in his research is that the less you make, the more you give as a percentage. So like people who are making less than $10,000 a year are the highest percentage givers in the church as a percentage of their income. Now you might say, well, that's because if they give $1,000, they've give away 10% of their income. That's a lot of money for somebody <laughs> making $10,000, right? Whereas people who are making like all other categories that they went up, they were like decreasing 
in the percentage. So like the more money you made, you're probably patting yourself on the back and going, hey, I gave $5,000 to my church. But if, I, you know, if you're making $150,000, that is not a big amount compared to the person that's 10000 So the lesson of the widow, what's so amazing, is as I was reading this book, I'm like, some things don't change. So I think we need to think about those things. Yeah. Also, just to go off of like giving up everything and what that meant for the people at the time in the New Testament, like I think part of it is if we were daily interacting with the poor, then maybe we couldn't even want to go to the movie because my friend has nothing to eat. So like maybe our priorities would shift if we were actually daily interacting with people and we actually love them because then we couldn't think of making a pool for ourselves because that wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't even be something we would struggle with. It would actually grieve us to think of doing it. And I'll tell you, I've been to people's homes that have way more than I do. All I'll say is the more that you come closer to understanding what Jesus' heart really was for, the more that your own heart hurts when you see the waste. So that in your own life, the lesson is to come back and at least put it into action in my life. Like I can't sit in judgment on anybody else's life. I can encourage them the way that I see it in Scripture, but I have to get my own life in order. Yeah. There's something that Phil and I were talking about yesterday, too, and we didn't really come to a conclusion. Like, we were wondering, like, the culture and the, and the society and the economic structure that we live in is fundamentally different than, than it was during Jesus' time. Fundamentally different. So, when you don't go out and eat, right, that server doesn't get paid. They don't get their tip. They can't afford food, you know, they can't make their rent. Now, they become poor. And so, we were, we were, contemplating what it looks like to, like, could that even be a consideration? Recognizing that part of what stewardship might be is participating in, at least to some degree, the very structure that keeps most people out of poverty. Like, there's something to be said about that. Like, is, is it dangerous to contribute in such a way that we put more people into poverty simply because of like we, we live in a society that just functions in a very peculiar way. I'll answer it this way. They asked me, I don't know why they asked me, but they asked me to be the faculty coordinator for Justice Week. So I sat down with the students and we wrestled with that issue the first time. Because most people in my contention think charity and justice are the same thing. They're not the same thing. I mean, if I told you, are they the same thing? You go, no. But we don't do justice, we do charity. Justice in, involves restoring people or getting them employed so they have dignity to continue onward, not just so that they can feed themselves, but literally so they have the God-given dignity they're supposed to have in the first place. And we sometimes just contribute through giving or something like that or think we're saving people when we really should be looking for ways to restore people in the way that God talks about in the Old Testament much more. We kind of had a small series on that, but that's kind of my answer, and I'll leave the rest for us to talk about afterwards. Because I would also say to you that one of the problems that the church has fallen into in America is that we started to buy into the American economy and thinking that, oh, if we just help people and this is actually creating jobs and employment, it's like, I think there's something wrong with the system where people have to spend so much money to keep the system going, where consumers have to outspend what they make so that the economy works. I mean, that's, I don't, you're right, that's not what Jesus had in mind. That's not what was going on in the first century. I mean, the first century, let's be fair, and Brittany kind of pointed out they had a different system. I mean, most people owned their homes. They built them themselves. They didn't have a mortgage. So when this is give up everything, they were still had some place to live over their head. And it was like giving up whatever they made from their trades to, to bring in people from the community. Our problem is we live in an economy where you could never do that. If I stopped working, I mean, forget giving away everything. If I just stopped working, they'd take our house away, right? So I think we're living in strange place and strange time that Jesus would look at and go, 
yeah, I mean, if that's the way you guys want to build your economy, but that's not the way I would have done it, right? That's my feeling. Let me add one more thing up here on living for ourselves. You know, if we're not, if we're just living for ourselves, sometimes we wonder, like, is there another consequence? And Jesus makes this warning. He told this parable really quickly about a steward that wasn't doing their job right. It's in Luke 16, verses 1 and 2. He says, there was a rich man who had a manager, a steward. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. It's fair that we should ask ourselves, do we squander the Lord's possessions? And he called the steward and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. If we continue to live for ourselves, he'll just remove us from stewardship. He'll just remove us from being a manager. You saw at the end of the parable of the talents, the guy who just hang on to it, didn't do anything with it, he was removed in a very abrupt way. So there is a consequence to living for ourselves. It's not just that we have to make an account at the end of our life. That accounting may come earlier than we expected. Finally, we know the parable of the rich fool, which I won't go into. We've done a number of times in here, is the one guy who said, I have so much crops, I'll just tear down my barns and build bigger and bigger barns. And then I'll take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And that's the night that the Lord comes to him and says, you fool, tonight your life will be demanded from you. And then Jesus, as we've said before, makes a commentary on his own parable. He says, this is how it will be with everyone who hoards things for themselves and is not rich towards God. So if we just live for ourselves, there's multiple consequences. We're going to make account and find to be wanting. We're also going to make account, maybe we'll be removed earlier. Or in this crazy case, in a parable, but Jesus kind of says it outside the parable, this is what might happen to people who live entirely for themselves. They might just forfeit their life. I don't know how to apply that. Seems like there's a lot of people on earth who are doing whatever they want. And, and I don't know that this is happening, but there's at least that warning in Scripture. You know, you've got to make a decision sometime, too. Do you want it now or do you want it later? That decision is in Scripture. Remember when Jesus was saying, don't store up treasure here, store it there. Well, how do you store it there? How do you send it ahead of yourself? Well, part of what he's saying is, for those who give up everything and are my disciples, for those who produce a return for me and my purposes, when I come to make account with you, there is a reward for you. That's how you store it up in the next life. So you've got to decide. You want to live it up now? Or do you want to live it up there, in eternity, where things don't rust and things aren't destroyed, and where thieves don't break in and steal? It's your choice. I mean, of course, there may be other consequences for disobeying the fact that we're supposed to take care of people and do the master's bidding. But if you're going to do it on a purely selfish basis, you just have to decide, where do I want my possessions? In this limited life or later? Some of us are like, well, I don't have any possessions. They don't really matter. I got nothing. Right. You're going to be making a different account to the master. He's going to say, what did you do with the life I gave you? You just sat around. You didn't produce anything for me. Others of us are going to be the other extreme. We're going to produce a lot of stuff and consumed it all for ourselves. And he's going to be like, what good did that do? Make an account, for you can no longer be manager. Look, we know the end of the parable of the talents, right? We're trying to finish our life well. The end of the parable of the talents is the time we make account to Christ. He says the master comes back and settles accounts with them. Find out how they did. I want us to finish well. You know that in the spring, we're going to go back and do another retreat. And the theme of our retreat will be the one that it was two years ago. 
which is taking inventory of the talents that God has given you. Where are you going in your life? How much further did you move from the last time we talked about them? And to just spend a weekend thinking about, Lord, what is it that I'm supposed to be doing and how do I get this community around me to encourage me to get there? The encouragement tonight is we need to get our financial house in order. That's part of it. It's a big part of it. It's not the only thing we need to steward well, but we're not stewarding this well. So that we can hear these words, come and share your master's happiness. You see this thing right here I highlighted in the parable of talents? He says, good and faithful servant. We hear that all the time. You've been faithful a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. What does that mean? Remember, the parable is being told in the context of the end, of judgment, of the end time. So if he's going to put him in charge of many things, like when would that happen? Life is over according to the parable. That's what the parable is kind of talking about. The kingdom at the end will be like this. He's talking about in the next life, where moth and rust do not destroy. You can be in charge of many things because you did well with what he gave you in this life. So you got a choice. We can have it now. We can have it later. Follow him. And be obedient. Or we can just kind of coast along and hope it works out well. People do not do things well accidentally. You've got to plan for it. You've got to think about it. That's why the parable about the tower is so important. You can't just start building and hope you finish. Because most people will never finish it. They didn't have what it takes to do it. So count the cost before you start. Last thing I want to do is I want to have Anthony play the song kind of as a closing. Because we ask about what it means to give up everything. And my friend Eric Heron, he's one of the best worship writers I know. And he wrote this song. The verse that's bolded is, Everything that I've been granted, I will hold with open hands, lift it up with joy to heaven, and surrender to your plans. You know, a lot of times we sing songs, we don't even read the words. I just want you to focus and meditate on the words. Because it talks about all the things we've been given that we don't deserve, that is given by God's grace, his mercy, and yet the right attitude for us with everything is to hold them with open hands because it all belongs to him. Just like David says, everything that we are given to you has been given to us by you, and we're only returning to you what you gave us from your own hand. So play this and let's meditate on it, and Soren will close us with a last song.